As most of you know, last week we took a break from our study of Mark to wrap up Vacation Bible School and sort of recap what had gone on that week. But this morning we are back in our study of Mark's gospel and we are at the end of chapter 8. And you will recall that I mentioned we were slowing down quite a bit in the second half of chapter 8. We have been primarily taking large blocks of Scripture because it is often stories But we've slowed down in the second half of chapter 8 because there are some very significant things here. Peter has made the great confession that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. And in response to that, Jesus has for the first time begun to tell them what kind of Messiah he is going to be. That is that he is going to suffer, die, and rise again. And then then the text we are looking at this morning is one of the basic standard texts for what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what discipleship is all about. And in a day and age and a world, and specifically in a part of the world, where there is so much confusion about what a genuine Christian is or is not, this is a significant text of Scripture to help us understand what it means to be a disciple or a Christian. Now, generally speaking, most people, all of us, I suppose, like to live. I mean, that's why we make comments like when someone says, how are you doing today? And sometimes people will say, well, any day above ground is a good day. Or as long as I've got breath or I'm still breathing. All of these are expressions that remind us that we want to live. It is why we spend a lot of money on medical devices and medicine and technology in order to prolong our lives. It is why we do not like to think about nor talk about nor be around death and dying. We just prefer to ignore it. And it is why when death does come our way and we know it's coming, We fight with all our might in order to survive. I have been around these kind of situations probably more than many of you merely because of the job that I am in. I've seen people who are fighting for their life, and I've seen families who are waiting around the room with them, and eventually they will lovingly whisper in the ear of that one which is dying something like, it's okay. We love you, and it's okay to go. And more times than not, shortly thereafter, that person will, in fact, give up the fight, and they will pass away. Spiritually speaking, it's how we market salvation. Do you want life? I mean real life. Do you want abundant life now and eternal life forever? Then come to Jesus. He is the author of life. He is the giver of life. He is the sustainer of life. So if you want to live, and I mean really live, then you need to come to Christ. And there is, of course, nothing wrong with saying that. Jesus did say, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus said, I give you eternal life. And so all of those comments are good and accurate and certainly biblical. And yet it is only part of the message, the part we like. And we tend to forget the other side of the equation. So what I'm going to talk about this morning is not in contradiction to what I've just said. It is going to sound like it is, but it is not. I'm going to to suggest today 
that the invitation to salvation is not only a call to life, but it is also a call to die. Now, that is not the message you likely came to hear on Father's Day. On Father's Day, we expect to come and hear a message that encourages our fathers, challenges our fathers. For some reason, on Mother's Day, we talk about how great the mothers are. And then on Father's Day, we come expecting uh, the pastor to give the the fathers a little kick along the way to help them be better. But I'm not going to do any of that this morning. But I will say that for a Christian father, his number one responsibility is not only to follow Christ faithfully, but to lead his family likewise. And so while we may not be talking about fathers in specific terms this morning, we are talking about the number one priority of a father, and that is to faithfully follow Christ and to lead his family to do likewise. Any good father knows that he is indeed willing to die for his children, and the disciples of Jesus should know that we ought to be willing to follow Jesus even if it means to death. You will recall that two weeks ago we looked at Peter's great confession. When Jesus asked, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am, Peter answered on behalf of all of the disciples, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah. The problem was they didn't know what kind of Messiah he was. And Jesus begins to teach them the first of three predictions of his suffering, death, and resurrection. And of course, because Peter was not expecting this, Peter takes Jesus aside and privately rebukes him, in essence saying, this is not the kind of Messiah you are going to be because that is not the kind of Messiah we are looking for. This was new teaching to the disciples. They had never heard of it. They did not understand some of the texts in the Old Testament that we understand, such as Isaiah 53 that prophesies a suffering servant. But I'm convinced one of the reasons they had problems with the kind of Messiah that Jesus was going to be is because even on that early occasion, they were beginning to understand the implications for their own life. In other words, if Jesus is going to suffer and die, what does that mean for me? If I'm following Christ, what does that mean for my future? They wanted victory. They wanted greatness. They were expecting glory. In fact, we'll see later that they were arguing over who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. They were not looking for suffering and death. And we want the same things, which is why we avoid suffering at all costs. And yet, in this passage we look at today, the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus calls us to die. And what many would consider a classic passage on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. A call to die. First of all, we see a call to die to a self-centered life. 
And I want you to understand that this call is not reserved for just the 12. The text tells us very plainly that Jesus called not only His 12 disciples, but He called the crowd. Now, we've seen the crowd around Him often in our study of Mark, but here it is very specific that He is calling the 12 and the crowd, and I think it's in part to remind us that this is not just a call for the 12. If He was just talking to them, we might be tempted to say, oh, but that was something reserved for the apostles. They were expected to go above and beyond because they were special, they were unique, they were the original 12. But because He calls the crowd here, we are left with a clear understanding that this is the call, this is the command for anyone, for everyone who desires to follow Jesus. Now, there are basically two words in the Bible used to speak of you once you have been saved. That is, after you have repented of your sins and by faith trusted in Jesus Christ, there are two basic words used of you. The first is the word disciple, which, of course, is where we get the word discipleship. It has the idea of a teacher-student relationship. That is, the disciple attaches himself to a teacher And then they expect to learn from and follow that teacher. Jesus was not the only teacher who had disciples in the New Testament, the New Testament times. It was a common relationship in those days. A person would attach themselves to a teacher to learn from them and follow them, much like, though a little bit different, from our current relationship that a teacher in the school has with a student. It is a relationship of learning and following the example. The second word that is used of you is the word Christian. That is a word that was used not initially by the believers themselves, but it was used by those who called them that, often in a derogatory manner. This word means a follower of Christ. As you can see, it has the word Christ with an ending to it, which means adhering to or belonging to. So this is the person who belongs to Christ. So a Christian or a disciple is more than someone who says, I prayed a prayer and invited Jesus into my heart. A Christian or a disciple is more than someone who says, I know Jesus or I believe in Jesus. Instead, it is someone who is learning from, following, and understands that they belong to Jesus. And the terminology we use is important because words communicate. And so Jesus didn't say in verse 34, if any man would come after me. Now here here he's setting them up and he's saying, what does it mean to be my disciple? If any man would come after me, he does not say pray a prayer. He says, follow me. That is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. And so our question and our concern this morning, again, especially in a culture that vastly misunderstands this, even in the Bible Belt of the southern United States, we have a hard time understanding what a genuine Christian is versus one who is simply calling themselves such. Jesus is going to tell us here what it means to be His disciple. And it certainly has to be more than praying a prayer and sitting around until Jesus calls me home. And we're going to see that in these verses. It starts with perhaps one of the hardest elements of all, deny yourself. That is, die to a self-centered life. And in a society that consistently preaches, exalt yourself, 
Look out for yourself. You got to take care of number one because nobody else is going to do it. You got to look after yourself because you can't expect someone else to do that for you. The idea of denying ourselves is hard to swallow. And yet this is the first thing that Jesus says. When he brings up this issue of discipleship, he says, deny yourself, die to a self-centered life. Now, perhaps Peter is already making the connection. If Jesus is going to suffer, these 12 men are following him, what does the future hold for him? Peter and the others, after all, I remind you, have left their homes. They have left their families. Now, presumably, they would have seen their families from time to time as they traveled in and out of Galilee or the other places from which they hailed, but, but they have in large measure left their families to follow him. They have left their careers for sure. They have cast aside their fishing nets or their tax collecting business, and they have embarked on a new career of following this teacher, this rabbi. They have left all that they have known to follow this man. Therefore, didn't they deserve some honor? Didn't they deserve some reward as a result? And again, we know on a future occasion that they are arguing over who was going to be the greatest. They wanted recognition. They expected reward. They were not signing on to suffering and sacrifice and ultimately death. And in many ways, that is still what we expect. When we sign the card to follow Jesus, we want blessings. We have been told that that is what we should expect, blessings in the form of health, blessings in the form of wealth. If you will follow Jesus, you can expect that He will, generally speaking, make you more healthy He will certainly provide for you, and I do not mean just the needs of our lives, but He will go well beyond providing for you in that manner. We expect that when we sign on to follow Christ, that He will clear the path for us, make our life more enjoyable and easier, more comfortable. And that's especially true if we check off the major boxes of the Christian life. You attend church regularly. You pray your prayers, you read your Bibles, you give occasionally, you mark off those four things, and you profess faith in Christ, then you can expect all of these blessings from God and many more. Because after all, in our minds, being faithful to God, and I hate to use this word, but we think it, being faithful to God obligates Him to bless us. Now, understand that there are blessings for following God. I'm not denying that. But do you hear how self-centered and self-focused all of this is? And how it is the exact opposite of this first element of true discipleship that Jesus mentions? How, How can we be denying ourselves when we think primarily about the benefits that come our way for following Jesus? And again, I'm not denying those benefits. I'm simply saying that they ought not to be our main focus. Even when we do manage to think in these terms, we often do so superficially. Well, he talked this morning about denying ourselves. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to deny myself something this week. I'm going to deny myself one of the Cokes I drink every day. And in turn, I'm going to give that money to missions. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a pretty good way to divert money to a better cause. 
But is that what Jesus is talking about here when he says, if any man wants to follow me, let him deny himself? I remind you that he puts nothing after that. He does not say deny yourself something. He does not say give up this little piece over here or occasionally for a specific period of time, give up this over here so that you can show yourself and others and ultimately God how serious you are about following me. The statement is simply deny yourself, not deny yourself something. And so Jesus does not qualify the statement. Discipleship begins with the understanding that I no longer belong to myself. We might expect an angry teenager from time to time, certainly not on Father's Day, but some other time during the year, we might expect an angry teenager to say, it is my life and I can live it any way I want. But no believer should ever ever say anything like that because it is not our lives. We have been bought with a price, Paul says. Therefore, glorify God with your lives. And that is why Paul and others also consistently talk in terms of slave and servant terminology in the New Testament. And I know those terms have negative connotations in our world, and rightfully so. But they use those because they understand that their life does not belong to them. If you want to be a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ, then he must come first. I've probably told you before, but some some years ago, I'm not sure it's still very prominent today, but some years ago, there was a movement called I Am Second. And in reality, it really should have been I Am Third because the Bible tells us, especially in Philippians, that we ought to esteem others higher than ourselves. But the idea behind the movement was good. That is, it it was trying to get our minds to understand that I do not come first in my life. God comes first, and therefore I'm second or third or whatever you want to call it, but God first. And so the premise was good, reminding us that God must have first priority in our lives. And it is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Discipleship, being a Christian, does not mean that we tack Jesus on to the other things in our lives. It does not mean that we incorporate him somehow into our daily lives, perhaps one day a week, perhaps a couple of hours a week, or perhaps just when we need him. It means he becomes our priority and we plan to follow him. So we are called to die to a self-centered life. And Luke, in his rendition of this, adds the word daily, emphasizing that this must be an ongoing and consistent aspect of our lives. Perhaps something we need to remind ourselves each morning when we awake. Today is not my day. Today does not belong to me. It is not about what I want to accomplish today or the dreams and goals that I want to pursue. It is about me following Christ and therefore what He desires for me today. One of the usual excuses we hear from people who are not attending church, those who may have sat beside you in years gone by and aren't here anymore, is this is the only day I have. It's the only day I have to sleep in. It's the only day I have to catch up on my chores. It's the only day I have to do whatever. And what we need to be reminded of is we don't have any days. They don't belong to me. Because we deny ourselves. We die to a self-centered life because we've been bought by Christ. 
Therefore, all of the days, not just Sunday, but all of the days belong to Him. And we're pursuing Him. Secondly, not only do we die to a self-centered life, we die to a safe life. We see this both in the take up your cross command and in the losing your life in order to gain it or save it. We do use or hear this phrase occasionally. You will hear well-meaning Christians say that such and such is the cross I have to bear. Maybe caring for aging parents and the difficulties that come with that. Well, that's the cross I have to bear. Maybe a wayward child and the sorrow that that brings. Well, that's just the cross I have to bear. Maybe it is a boss that I have to deal with at work day in and day out. And so we wake up on a Monday morning with a grin and bear it attitude, go to work and endure those things at work because after all, this is the cross I have to bear. Is that what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross and follow me? Well, a helpful way, not only here but elsewhere, is to try to understand how the original audience would have heard a statement like this. Because understanding how the original audience would have taken it helps us to know how Jesus or what Jesus meant when he said it. So how would the original audience have taken this idea of take up your cross? And the answer is there's only one way. You are probably somewhat familiar with the details surrounding the passion narrative of Christ, including the fact that it was customary for the condemned criminal to literally carry their cross to the place of execution. And so they would take a cross, much like this pulpit, though bigger, of course, and they would lay it on their shoulders, and they would drag it as they walked to the place where that cross then would be placed into the ground, and they would be nailed upon it. And we know in Jesus' case that he was so worn out and weary from all that he had endured that he was unable to finish that particular aspect, and so another was compelled to do it on his behalf, Simon of Cyrene was compelled by the Roman soldiers to finish carrying the cross of Jesus to where he would be crucified. So we know that this was the common custom with the Romans when it came to crucifixion. So I think you can see where I'm going with this. Taking up the cross is not tolerance of minor inconveniences. It is not whatever else you want to talk about as far as something I must bear, an annoyance in life. Neither is it being brave enough to wear a necklace fashioned in the form of a cross so that everybody knows you're a believer. Taking up a cross is not about hanging crosses in our homes so that everybody that enters knows that we are a genuine believer. Taking up our cross is not about having crosses in our sanctuary so that everybody who comes in knows that we serve a risen Savior who is no longer on the cross, though though all of these things are perfectly fine. It is just not what he's talking about here when he says, take up your cross. Take up your cross means that you must die to the safe life, meaning that discipleship may, in fact, result in death. Now, gratefully, we do not face martyrdom in our society for being a follower of Christ. And that is another reason why we ought to be grateful for where we were born and where we live. But in every generation, there have been places in the world where Becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ meant that in all likelihood you were marked for death. And in every generation, including our own, there have been those places where people will die for believing in Jesus. 
So may we not, in our culture, downplay what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross, just because we do not face martyrdom, when we know there are people around the world who do face this, and that is what Jesus is talking about. As part of our Southern Baptist Convention this past week, the International Mission Board held a commissioning service for 26 new missionaries. Late one afternoon, that was about an hour-long focus of our, of our convention. And as part of that, they brought all 26 new missionaries onto the platform. And they would come onto the platform, and they would say their name, and they would tell us a little bit about their call to missions, which generally included where they had served previously. In other words, many of these had served short-term mission opportunities, and now they were going full-time with the mission board. And so they would say, I served for two years in so-and-so, and that is where God really led me to come to the conclusion where I need to serve full-time. And then, of course, they would tell us where they were going what part of the world, what country they were going to minister in. But many of those 26, we did not see their faces. Many of them were not shown to us who were in the audience, nor put on camera for the video to be shown. Because they were going to parts of the world where it is not safe to name the name of Christ or certainly to proclaim the name of Christ. So therefore, we were not told or we were not shown their face for their own safety and security. Now, I know, I told you that when I returned from Israel, uh, the, the question I got the most, I mean, it wasn't even close, the question I was asked time and time again was this, is it safe? Is it secure? In fact, I have a friend who is in, in Israel right now with a church in his community. And before he agreed to go, he asked me that question. He said, hey, my wife and I are thinking about going, but before I sign up, I want to know, is it safe? And I assured him that it was, and therefore he signed up. I thought about texting him before he left last Tuesday and saying to him, hey, because of my assurance you went on the trip, if by chance you don't make it back, I will do your funeral for free. <laughs> but I decided not to text that for fear that something might happen, and then I'll look really bad at the funeral. But that's what we all want to know. Is it safe? Am I going to be okay? And I want you to understand that I, I, I'm, not, I'm not one who takes great risks. I'm the kind of guy that will willingly forego my personal rights if it means safety and air travel. They can do anything they want to me before I get on that plane to make sure that everybody else on that plane is safe. So I'm not talking about needless risks here. I'm not saying we ought to be foolish and constantly risk our lives, but what I am saying is that being a disciple of Jesus does involve risk, even sometimes to the point of death. And if our major priority is preserving this life, then we've neither understood this life nor the life to come, because a disciple willingly gives up this life for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the life to come because we understand that those things are far more valuable than anything in this life. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And if our first concern with a missionary is safety, and I've heard this time and time again, somebody will come forward and they'll say, you know, I've, I've been called to missions. I want to go to be a missionary. And They'll say where they want to serve, and their parents or their fellow church members will say, is it safe? 
And sometimes we ought to just say, no, it's not. And that's okay. Because if our number one concern is is safety, when we send missionaries to the field, we are unintentionally communicating that the gospel is not worth taking to people who have never heard. And we are unintentionally communicating that this life is more important than eternity. So we need to understand when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, that might involve some risk. And that might involve sending some people, even our own children or grandchildren, into places around the world that are not safe, but they're doing it for the cause of Christ. So we have to be very careful that we not communicate the exact opposite to people and say to them subtly that your personal safety is more important than spreading the gospel around the world. And often in our own efforts to lead people to Christ, we do the same thing. Because all we talk about is the benefits. All we tell them about is the blessings. And we fail to talk to them about the responsibilities and the commitments. And then once we get them to sign the card, then gradually we begin telling them, well, oh, by the way, there's some other stuff. I mean, you need to do this too. And you need to not do that. And you need to be willing to go here. And then they start saying, well, this is not what I signed up for. I mean, I thought I just prayed a prayer and signed a card, and then I could basically live my life the way I wanted, and someday Jesus would come for me or call me home, and I'd live with him forever. Is it any wonder that so many people are sitting in their homes this morning with that idea of what discipleship is? Because that's what we've, maybe not intentionally, but that's what we've taught them. We've not taught them to count the cost. Jesus himself said, count the cost. The Bible tells us that a king is wise if he counts the cost before going into battle, because if he doesn't, he might find himself in the midst of battle and lose because he's not not counted the cost ahead of time. The Bible tells us that it is wise for a contractor to count the cost before he builds a building because he might find himself in the middle of building that building and he's out of money and he'll look like a fool. And likewise, Jesus said, count the cost because there is a cost. Now again, the, the benefits far outweigh the cost, but there is a cost. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, die to a self-centered life, and take up his cross, die to a safe life. And again, this is not just for the 12, this is for all of us, which is why further on in the gospel story we read that many of his disciples, not the 12, but disciples in a more general sense, many of the disciples turned their back or turned back and no longer walked with him. That's what John said. And then Jesus asked the 12, well, what about you? Are you going to leave also? And Peter, once again answering on behalf of the 12, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Another of Peter's great comments and statements. Discipleship is difficult and demanding. The crowds were huge and large. We've seen that throughout Mark's gospel. As long as there were miracles and meals, the crowds were there. But when Jesus began to tell them about what kind of Messiah he was going to be, and the implications began to filter down that if that's what he's going to be and I'm following him, that has some major implications for my future, the crowds began to dwindle. But where could they go? He was their only Savior. He was the only way to a relationship with God. Thomas, 
the one we call Doubting Thomas, and that's really the only thing we know about Thomas. Thomas was the guy who was not there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, and when the disciples told him about what had happened, Thomas said, I will not believe unless I see him for myself and I touch the scars. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. And for many people, that's all they know about this disciple. But there was another incident that I think you need to be aware of. It centered around the death and ultimate resurrection of Lazarus. And most of you know that story. Jesus was friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Lazarus had died. Jesus was not there when he had died because he had recently left that area, and he had left that area because they were striving to persecute him and ultimately kill him. And we know that's going to happen later, but it wasn't time for that yet. And so Jesus and his disciples left that region for their own safety. And so they weren't there when Lazarus died. And when they got news of his death, they waited two more days. And then Jesus said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. And his disciples said, not a good idea. Jesus, that is, I'm just telling you, that's not where we ought to go. Do you not remember that we were just there a few days ago and we left there because the heat was getting too hot and now you want to go back? And Thomas, doubting Thomas, said this to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now that may sound very pessimistic to you, Thomas. That's all you got? I mean, if we go back there, he's clearly going to die. There's no way around it. But at the same time, doesn't that at least say to us that Thomas was willing to die with Jesus if that's what it meant? He said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And that is what Jesus is saying to us here. Let us follow him even if it means death. He goes on to explain in our text that holding lightly to this life as if it is our own will result in loss. While letting it go by denying ourselves and taking up the cross is what genuine salvation is all about, and it is capped by that famous statement in verse 36, for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his soul? It really boils down to what is most important. What is our priority, our soul or our temporary safety? We must die to a self-centered life. We must die to a safe life. Thirdly, we must die to a self-serving life. There is certainly more we can talk about, but these three elements are what I think is found here in this core statement on what discipleship and following Jesus is all about. So rather than striving to get all we can out of this life for ourselves, we ought to deny ourselves and not serve ourselves, but serve Christ and serve others. And I know that sounds rather redundant and perhaps even obvious, but sometimes we miss what is right in front of our eyes. Jesus is talking about following Him. He's not talking about reciting a prayer. He's not talking about even talking about following Him. He is talking about actually following Him, getting up and following Christ. And certainly that involves obedience which means we need to know what he says. James reminds us that it's not about being hearers of the word only. It is about being doers of the world, word. So in order to follow Jesus, in order to not serve ourselves but serve him, we have to know what it is he taught. And I didn't know that your 
Sunday school lesson. I didn't look that up until I heard the prayer at uh, our offering this morning. But it was about the fact that God desires obedience, not sacrifice. In fact, we'll talk about that briefly tonight from Micah as well. And so we, we find it here also. It's actually about following. That is obedience, which also means it's about repentance because we will not perfectly follow. We won't even be close. So we will all fall short of that, which means we must confess and repent when we do fall short, and then we get back on track because no one is going to perfectly and completely obey. And so repentance is a necessary element of following Jesus, as is relying on the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this on our own. This is not something we can accomplish by our own willpower or strength. And by the way, that statement about being ashamed of Jesus, he's not talking there about a momentary lapse of courage. Uh, Don't fear that because there was that one time where you should have stood up for Jesus and did not, there was that one time that you knew you should have witnessed and you failed to, or that one time that a friend needed someone to come alongside them in their stand for Christ and you were too ashamed to do it. Don't take this to mean that you have lost your salvation or never had it at all. He's not talking about momentary lapses of courage that we all experience. He's talking about a settled lifestyle. If you are consistently um, denying Christ and His claims upon your life, then it is a sign that you are not a genuine believer. Now, of course, all of this takes commitment. This must be our priority. In this passage that we've read this morning, this is very clear. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not a part-time job. It is not a hobby to be enjoyed when our other responsibilities are complete. It is not something that we will do when we retire and have more time. It is not something that is just for the weekends or even just for Sunday. It is a full-time commitment that we've made for the rest of our lives, which means it takes endurance. Discipleship is not a sprint. It is a marathon. It begins the moment you are saved and doesn't end until your life does or until Jesus returns which is also why it is so important to remember the words of Jesus, those who endure to the end will be saved. That does not mean that endurance gains salvation. It means that endurance is a sign of genuine salvation. And I know all of this, frankly, sounds not only difficult, which is why we must rely upon the Holy Spirit, But I know all of this can sound very much like work salvation. And so I want to say at the close here that that is not what Jesus is talking about nor what I'm trying to convey. I am not saying that if you will die to a self-centered life, if you will die to a safe life, and if you will die to a self-serving life, that you will then be saved. That is not what I'm saying. I am saying, however, that doing those three things is a mark of what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. That is, when you have repented of your sins, and by faith you have trusted in Christ as the Messiah, and He then has, by the power of the Holy Spirit, changed your heart, this is the kind of disciple you will be. Though it is not natural, though it is not normal, it is necessary. And this is not radical Christianity. This is Christianity. This is not just for those who are really serious. This is not just for the apostles. This is not just for the select few that really want to be spiritual. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, pure and simple. 
And the reason that sounds so foreign to so many of us is because we bought into the false idea that our world and our part of the country is so familiar with. Pray a prayer, you'll go to heaven when you die. It's not what Jesus says here. If anyone wants to follow me, and then he lays it out for us. So is that, a, is that your idea of discipleship? Are you ready to do more than sit and wait for the end of your life so that you can go to heaven or for Christ to come and get you? Are you ready to die to a self-centered, safe, and self-serving life because there is so much more in knowing, following, and serving Christ? I am not promising that it will be easy, nor am I saying that we ought to scare people by saying this is what lies ahead for you if you sign on the dotted line. We are not about to change our methods at VBS and start scaring children saying to them, you will die a violent death if you follow Christ, but if you're serious, you need to do it anyway. I'm not going to that extreme, but I am saying what Jesus is saying, and that is the Christ-centered life might be risky. The Christ-centered life might be difficult. The Christ-centered life might mean persecution. But denying all of that just for this world, what does it profit you? That's what he says. But losing all of that, that is forsaking anything that this world has to offer for the sake of serving Christ, you gain eternity, which is far greater than anything you might lose along the way. 